Good morning, everyone. It's really good to be with you. Uh, last week, we started a new sermon series entitled Arguing with Jesus. And what we're doing is we're looking at places in the gospel, Gospels where Jesus has confrontation that reveal what's important to him, how he argues and how he treats the people he engages with. And we're doing this in hope as a church that we can start to think about how to bring gospel truth and love to the polarizing shouting matches within our culture. So today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard him disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for gathering us together as your people to hear your word. And Father, at this moment, we do not take being together in this place, in this space, for granted. And so, Spirit, we ask that you would be our teacher this morning. You would open our ears and our eyes to see King Jesus. Teach us to love as we engage, and as we think about the polarizing shouting matches that are going on in our culture. Father, teach us to love as you have loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the fall of 2018, right before Thanksgiving, the New York Times published a piece that was meant to help readers get better at having political conversations with their relatives over the holidays. And the piece is called The Angry Uncle Bot. And what it is is an algorithm that coaches you through having a conversation with a simulated angry uncle, which of course is a lot safer than with a real angry uncle. And you can choose whether you want your angry uncle bot to be conservative or liberal. And then you get to respond to statements that your angry uncle makes. Now the algorithm gives you really helpful feedback on your responses, which is great. But in general, it discourages responses that begin with, you dummy, and instead encourage you to ask questions and reflect back what you hear, to find common ground, and to use stories to share your point of view. Now, I think these are helpful guides for civic discourse, but something I find interesting is the contrast between this step-by-step approach to conflict management and how wildly unpredictable Jesus' approach is to arguments. And as you read through the Gospel of Mark, and particularly in chapter 12, Jesus is involved in a whole lot of debates and conflict. And what's crazy is that you can never base an algorithm for our own behavior off of them. 
Sometimes Jesus is really obtuse. Other times he is super direct. At one point he turns over tables in the temple. And other times he sidesteps questions by offering puzzling to parables. See, Jesus doesn't offer us a playbook for how to engage with someone who deeply offends us. The only thing that seems to tie these responses together is the interest in the hearts of the people that he is interacting with. The creators of the angry uncle bot say something I find really insightful. They say, our political attitudes and beliefs are intertwined with our most basic human needs, our needs for safety, belonging, identity, and purpose. And Jesus' response to conflict seems to always hover around, center around those core human needs of the people he's encountering. He provokes in order to expose the desires, the values, and the fears that lie behind the disagreement. He seeks to stir up hunger so that he can offer them what they really need. So in Mark 12, we find Jesus in the temple, surrounded by the religious elites, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, the religious right and left of Jesus' day. And these groups of people have been questioning and quizzing Jesus. And it's clear to everyone, including Jesus, that they want to entrap him in order to get him arrested and or have him killed. Now, the scribe in our passage comes with the question that on the face of it doesn't sound much different than the barrage of questions that come before. But the gospel writer here seems to indicate that something is different. The way in which Jesus answered his opponents has captured this scribe's attention and impressed him. And so this scribe takes a social risk. He steps outside of his social tribe and asks Jesus a genuine question. Rather than trying to trap Jesus, he's kicking the tires. Is this guy really who Jesus, who he says he is? And the scribe asked Jesus a loaded question. Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, for the scribe, this question might be like asking a Supreme Court justice, what is the most important clause in the U.S. Constitution? How do you affirm one without devaluing another? And his question at its heart is this. Jesus, which commandment most defines who we are as a people and how we are to please God? Now, this is a big question given that there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. But in fact, the weightiness of the question stands in contrast to the questions posed by the religious elite who are hoping to trip Jesus up on minor points of the law. The Pharisees asked just before our passage, should we pay a minor tax to Caesar or not? And then the Sadducees come along and pose a hypothetical situation, hoping to trap Jesus into debating esoteric minutia about how the resurrection will work when they don't even believe in the resurrection. But Jesus refuses to get sidelined into talking about issues that are on the periphery of what's important. His response always gets at, what is this really about? In other words, 
I would argue that Jesus' Jesus' response is always meant to engage and draw out the deepest reality of the human heart. You see, when people come to fight Jesus, when they are coming to Jesus to stand toe-to-toe with him, he's going to use that conversation to get at what is it that they value or desire or love? What is it that they fear? And he's going to do that so that he can offer his invitation of kingdom goodness, kingdom restoration, kingdom provision to the core parts of who we are, our core affections and our core wounds. He is not interested in what's on the periphery, what we project out onto the world. He is after your heart. He is after my heart. And I think Jesus is inviting us to follow his lead here. You see, when we encounter claims or points of debate that rile us up, that trigger us to want to fight, maybe our first questions can be, what is it that this person really values that is driving the argument? What is it that they fear? And how does that influence their argument? And what does the gospel have to say to those values, desires, and fears? If we get to the heart of the matter, the core motivation, we will get a glimpse of the human behind the argument. And what it creates, at least in my experience, is empathy and understanding and compassion for the other we will begin to see them as Jesus sees them and can begin to invite them into dialogue in the way that Jesus invites us into dialogue. Now, Jesus gives the scribe two rules of engagement that can help us test not only what we argue for, but how we engage with others as we argue. Now, Jesus answered the scribe's question by quoting a very familiar text, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Jesus says, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Now, Jesus' answer would not have raised any eyebrows. There might have been some nodding and agreement, some verbal amens, maybe some room for debate, but he wasn't shocking anyone until he added the second commandment. Jesus continues, the second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, I think it's difficult to hear Jesus' words with the same awe, the same amazement as the scribe would have. But no rabbi before Jesus had ever connected these two commandments together as the supreme law. And church, it is revolutionary. It is so revolutionary and shocking that Mark tells us that no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. And the surprising thing is what the, how the scribe responds. He says, you are right, teacher. This way of living is more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Jesus commends the scribe's wisdom with breathtaking words. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, church, when we are in disagreement with someone, Jesus says to love them, 
as we love ourselves. But as, as our lives often show, this is often much more difficult than just saying it. Notice that this is different than the golden rule which says, treat others as you want to be treated. Because this is a social reciprocity. I'll do good to you because I want you to do good for me. But this is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, whatever you do to care for yourself, do it for your neighbor too, regardless of what they do for you. Why? Because they're made in God's image, and because they're made in His image, they have inherent dignity and beauty and worth. Paul in Ephesians wrote, No one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body. And so this means, at the very least, that we should make sure that our neighbor, who who Jesus says is anyone that crosses our path, isn't hungry, isn't cold, doesn't lack the basic necessities of life. However, as we sink deeper into the love of God, we will begin to love others more deeply. For example, as we understand the ways in which God has forgiven us, we can forgive ourselves and extend that lavish forgiveness to others. As we begin to receive Jesus' kindness for the places that we need most, we can begin to extend that same kindness and delight to our neighbors. And as we understand the length Jesus has gone to rescue us, we will be energized to extend ourselves in love for others. Yes, we are going to have to seek wisdom for our unique situations to know how to live out love. But the fact remains The chief way that we live out our love for God is by loving people. It's how our love for God is measured and made concrete. And we can love them well to the extent that we have received and metabolized God's God's immeasurable love for us. The claim of this passage is radical that love is the strongest force in this world, able to stand against the brokenness of sin when all other defenses fail. That anything that we do without love is worthless. To love is to have our lives marked by the goodness of how we treat others, whether or not they deserve it. It is to be rooted in patience and kindness and humility and forbearance and forgiveness and a delight in others' good. And Jesus' prayer for the church is that this family would be a place where we would do that for one another. I mean, think about it. It would be an incredible testimony to God's goodness if we, as this church family, with all of our differences of experiences and opinions, could sit down at the proverbial dinner table and seek to understand each other's desires and values and fears as we argue with one another. What a transformational experience to have someone we disagree with care first and foremost about our humanity. Because when we experience that, we are experiencing the grace of Jesus. And it might be, it might be 
that it will give us the freedom to explore the ways in which we ourselves are wrong or where we may be arguing for the right thing with a motive that is not loving. And church, I'm under no illusion that this is really hard work. But it's work that changes hearts and minds, including our own. And it's work that the world desperately needs us to do. And so may the Lord give us the grace to do it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.